Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to John's, and uh, it's great that you can be here if you're visiting. Uh, we look forward to meeting you over morning tea. We're working through this series of Luke 6 to 9 over Term 1 and Term 2 this year, um, so we come to this passage that we're going to consider this morning. Uh, before I pray in a moment and we do look at it, uh, let me just uh, give one extra announcement in terms of baptism classes. Uh, we're having a class today in the church library just through there, straight after this service at quarter past 12. So if you haven't been baptised but you'd like to think about that or to consider at least what the New Testament teaches about baptism, we'd love you to join us. There are a couple of people considering baptism. Uh, you'd be welcome to come along to uh, following this service. Now let me pray for us. ask that God will help us as we um, look at his word this morning. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather together this morning. I would thank you that in your wisdom, you have given us your word, uh, that we might know you, and most of all, know the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent. Uh, help us this morning as we consider uh, his role and his claim upon our life, that we might uh, hear your word as your Spirit uh, challenges us, uh, that we might respond aright. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there have been uh, many people down through the years to have claimed to be something they weren't or pretended to be something that they were not. In 2014, uh, police officers on the Spanish island of Tenerife uh, were alerted to the presence of a gorilla outside Loro Park Zoo. And so the police sent a vet who thwarted the attempted zoo escape with a tranquilizer shot. Uh, but the story spun in a different direction when the vet realised that the supposed gorilla was actually a human dressed in a gorilla costume. See, apparently the zoo had been uh, holding a gorilla escape drill and one of its workers had been dressed in this costume and pretended to be the escaping gorilla. And so this 35-year-old employee was um, shot in the leg <laughs> with a tranquilizer, and he went down pretty quickly. And the next thing he knew, he was waking up in the University Hospital of the Canary Islands where he was treated and then discharged. Uh, the park later made a statement saying that he was now in good health and was grateful for all the messages of concern. But I imagine he won't put his hand up to pretend to be the gorilla again. And of course, there are more ex uh, serious examples of this, um, of those who pretended to be something that they weren't, which had grave consequences. Uh, many, for example, have claimed to be the Messiah or the Christ down through the centuries. In fact, there were many even in Jesus' day in the first century uh, that did so. Uh, one of them was a man named Throngers who claimed to be the Messiah. He was a Jewish man who led an insurrection against the Romans. Um, he went against um, uh, the local uh, Roman puppet, Archaeus, and um, with a band of his brothers who had previously been shepherds, uh, started this army and created a lot of skirmishes where they defeated the Romans a number of times over two years. They were quite effective. And even the Romans noted this in their history. Their uh, historian Josephus wrote this of him. He was a tall man and excelled others in the strength of his hands, and so he was so bold as to set himself up as king. And he put a diadem about his head, and he assembled a, assembled a council to debate about the things that should be done in Israel, and things were done according to his pleasure for some time. Well, it ended quite badly in this man's case, and he was shown through his violence and various other things not to be the Christ. But you see, as we come to this passage in Luke 7 today, we discover that there were those who had doubts about whether Jesus was the Christ. 
And so the nature of Jesus' identity really hangs over this whole section of Luke. And with that comes the question for ourselves, how should we view Jesus? The big question that I want us to consider this morning, therefore, is how are we to respond to Jesus? How are we to respond to him? And we'll see as we work through this passage that three points are offered about this question. Which brings me to the first answer. The first answer to this question is this. With certainty rather than doubt. With certainty rather than doubt. So notice again what was recorded from verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, I think as we um, read this section, we're initially in shock. I mean, how can John the Baptist be confused about the identity of Jesus? Isn't John related to him? Wasn't he the one that was the precursor to the coming Christ who announced that he had come to prepare the way and then had pointed to Jesus as that one? How can he be confused? Well, as we backtrack and think through the timeline of Luke's gospel to this point, see, back in Luke chapter 3, John had already been locked up in prison. He's imprisoned at this point. He had confronted um, the ruler Herod about his marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias, and how that was wrong and immoral. And so Herod had thrown uh, John into prison. And so in jail, he's not able to observe everything. I guess he's only hearing occasional reports from his followers about what Jesus is doing out there. But he clearly had some doubts and concerns. And I think what this highlights for us is the differences between John's own expectations of the Christ and what Jesus was actually doing in his ministry. You see, when we read um, John's own uh, description of what the Christ will do in Luke 3 as he announces the coming of this one, he presents the Christ as a very fiery reformer who will bring destruction and judgment upon the nation. But as we look at what Jesus was doing to this point, Jesus would certainly condemn the religious leaders at various points who opposed him so so fiercely. But judgment was largely going to wait until Christ's second coming. The judgment that was promised was real but was withheld. And so John's growing doubts had to do with his understanding of these last days, this period of the Christ. What would happen to the righteous and the unrighteous? When the Christ appeared, no doubt he thought that rulers like Herod that had thrown him in jail should be overthrown. And yet while John was languishing in prison, he's not hearing of any plans of Jesus to bring judgment upon the powers that be, but rather he's ministering to needy people in the streets. And so instead of carrying an axe and cleaning the threshing floor and uh, burning the chaff at this point, uh, Jesus' earthly ministry would largely involve curing and freeing and resuscitating. He would care for the blind and the cripples, 
for the lame, for the deaf. He would even raise the dead while preaching the good news to the poor. And of course, this is how he answers John's disciples that come to him with their concerns. He's basically saying to them, well, they just need to look around to see what he is doing and realize that he is fulfilling the role of the Christ. In fact, the list that Jesus gives in verse 22 of the things he's doing is really a paraphrase of Isaiah 61, which Jesus had already pointed to at the commencement of his public ministry. Do you remember back in chapter 4, as Jesus started his ministry in the Galilee area and he went into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he turned to the place in Isaiah 61 and he read out to them this prophecy regarding himself. Have a look again, if you've forgotten those words. Luke 4, verse 17 to 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to see the oppressed free, to proclaim the years of the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor. And after reading that, while all eyes are on him, he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in his hearing. And so here is the blueprint for Christ's ministry. This is the role of the Christ as he comes. And so Jesus says, go back to John, to his disciples. Tell John what you've seen and heard. That's exactly what I'm doing. It seems that John expected the coming one to act as judge right now. But Jesus says, first I must come as the saviour. He's not yet coming to overthrow all oppressors. For the present, he's bringing the good news salvation through faith in him. And that's why the Apostle Paul would later write, now is the time of God's favour. Today is the day of salvation. So as we apply this first section and think about that for ourselves today, I think we're challenged to consider how we're responding to Jesus. Are we responding to Jesus with certainty? Or are we responding with doubt? And unbelief. Now, um, doubts can come into the lives of people. Sure, uh, we know one of Jesus' own disciples is famously known as Doubting Thomas. But so often our doubts are really self-doubts or how we're responding to Christ. But it's not about our ability or understanding. It's about having certainty in who Jesus is, his identity and what he came to do. And placing our faith in his actions and his teaching. You know, some f- years ago, some friends of mine were uh, taking a trip to northern Africa and they decided they would fly in the local carrier um, to get in there because the flights were much cheaper with that particular airline and it was flying straight into the capital where they wanted to go. And so they went on that plane. And um, as they were approaching the capital and going into the descent, Um, they noticed that all around them people were breaking out into various rituals of doing certain things and many of them praying. And they're thinking, gee, should we be fearful? Are we really going to land? And as people went through these various ceremonies, they didn't realize how fortunate they were that as the plane landed, it landed to unanimous applause from everybody on the plane. Now, I think I would have found that a bit disconcerting as well. Um, Apparently it's uh, more to do with culture rather than their fear that the plane was faulty. But you see, with a situation like this, um, your faith has to be in the thing that will determine the outcome. 
it wouldn't matter how many rituals you did or um, what things the, the passengers might like to um, go through, whatever rigmarole. Faith is not some disconnected idea that's unrelated to reality. It has to be in the object or the person that will determine the outcome. And so it needed to be in the plane that it was engineered well and had been maintained, that the pilot was in his right mind and could land the plane. And in the case of Jesus, it's not about the greatness of our faith, something that we can work up, but how trustworthy Jesus is, how through his actions and his words we have evidence that he is the Christ, that he is the one that John the Baptist was pointing to. And so we look at all that he did and we realize that we are not to doubt but rather to have certainty about this one. See, our privilege as those who sit this side of the cross some 2,000 years later doesn't mean that we're exempt from taking God at his word. You know, what is at the heart of doubt? Surely in the end it's unbelief. It's a refusal to trust Jesus despite all the evidence that we have. You know, God's people in every age have a choice each and every day. We have heard God's voice. We have listened to his promises in his word. We have seen what he's done as we record, as we read the record and testimony of those who saw it firsthand. And we can either continue to respond in repentance and faith and trust his word day by day, or we can give way to doubts and unbelief. And if we do so, then we begin to cultivate a hardening of our heart, which is in danger of turning away from the Lord who came to save us. And that brings me to a second point. Second point in how we should answer this question. How should we respond to Jesus? Not only with certainty, but also with complete trust as he is the awaited Christ. With trust because he is the Christ. Notice again what is recorded in verses 26 to 28. Jesus says to John's disciples and the crowd that are there, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messages ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's interesting here, isn't it? We see that Jesus affirms John's ministry, even though John is expressing doubts about him. In fact, Jesus points out here that John wasn't just any prophet. He was the last and the climax of the prophets because he was the one who had the privilege of pointing to the coming Christ, to the one who had been promised for centuries and would now arrive. And he quotes from Malachi 3.1 to back this up, alluding to the fact that you know, John the Baptist was the new Elijah that was come to clear the way for the Messiah. And of course, John himself, when he began his own ministry in Luke 3, quoted from Isaiah 40, a similar passage to Malachi 3, where he announced the nature of his ministry being to be the one voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But you see what Jesus is doing here? Not only is he affirming John, and his ministry, but he's also pointing to the truth that he is the foreshadowed Christ, the one to whom John was pointing. 
There's a call here to acknowledge the unfolding plan of salvation that God had in place that was being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. See, John's ministry of repentance, with um, many thousands of people flocking out to the Jordan River to be baptised, acknowledging their sin before God, was indeed to prepare the way of God's kingdom being ushered in. And that would be brought in by the ministry of the Christ. And Jesus was that one. And as the crowd heard Jesus making the connection between himself and John that day, of course, all the dots lined up. We read in verse 29, yes, they, they had that sense that, yes, we went out because we were moved by God. We saw our need and we knew that we were being prepared for what was to come. They had been moved to repent so that their hearts would be ready to receive Jesus. And here he was, the promised Christ. It was only in verse 30 the religious leaders who kept rejecting Jesus, those who, in the same way, rejected John, who refused to go out to be baptised, who just went to observe, who felt they had nothing to repent of, and whom John exclaimed as they did occasionally go out and see him, what are you doing here? Go away, you brood of vipers. Go and show true fruit in keeping with repentance. And they would reject Jesus just like they rejected John. But if the people understood God's work in the ministry of John the Baptist, then he was pointing to Jesus. He was the Christ that they were waiting for. And Jesus says in verse 28, moreover, that this new era that he ushers in is a kingdom that is far greater than anything that has gone before. Do You see, it's an upside-down kingdom. After he's just said that John is the greatest person to be born of a woman, then he says, but the person who's least in this new kingdom of mine is greater than he. Well, how can that be so? Well, because they will understand the greater truths and the fulfilment of all that had been promised in Christ. Indeed, in this new age that had now dawned, God would raise up the lowly, the little ones, the lame, the deaf, even those who had died, and the poor would be ministered to. And again, this all highlights what Christ has been doing and what he's been teaching, and that the people, knowing that and having seen it, should trust in him. They had to recognize God's hand at work in all these events. He was the promised one. How did they know? Well, they had the evidence before them. They saw the authority of actions. They saw the authority of miracles of Jesus. And so what they needed to do was to step out in trust that he was the Christ that they waited for. Stepping out in trust is sometimes hard, isn't it? Um, when it comes to roller coasters, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, actually. The, the higher they go, the faster they are, the more I like them. And I've, I think I've been to every major roller coaster in Australia and a few in the United States as well. And knowing that, a friend of mine sent me an email about a decade or so ago now. But at the time, uh, the fastest and tallest roller coaster in the world was being constructed at Cedar Point in the U.S., uh, it's called the Top Thrill Dragster these days. Um, it's still in the top three, and it's got the largest drop still in the world, so it'd still be the one I'd want to go to. Um, but riders launch out of this starting position, and they travel from zero to 120 miles an hour, so that's over 160 k's in four seconds. It's high-tech hydraulic acceleration system. <laughs> Much better than a plane. Um, rocket up this vertical 420-foot hill, crest the apex 90 degrees and then you plummet down 400 feet while doing a 270 degree twist and land in the finish line. How good is that? <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? Maybe you think, no, that doesn't sound great. That's crazy. How do you know that this is fail-safe? You know, is the technology proven? 
Well, you know, the email told me that they had a rigorous testing and inspection licensing program before they opened it, so, you know, I'm trusting it. Maybe you've met a few engineers and you're not so sure, you know. There's human error, there's problems that come. Well, yes, there can be human error, even in the things that are planned that we need to step out in. But when we come to Christ's authority, his trustworthiness, there's no human error. Yes, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. His trustworthiness is not like that of a finite human being. You know, we're called to trust him with our whole life, yes. But here is the one who can command the wind and the waves, who can speak and a person's healed from a lifelong illness, who can even raise the dead. This is the one that I'm called to trust in. He is worthy of our trust. He expects nothing less from us. And we have every certainty as we place our faith in him. And that brings me to a third answer to our question. Third answer to our question of how we should respond to Jesus. With certainty, with trust, but lastly, with a realigning of our expectations. With a realigning of our expectations. So you notice again what is stated in verses 31 and 32 as this section is rounded out. Jesus went on to say, Look, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you, but you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you wouldn't cry. You see, Jesus summarizes the differing reactions to the ministries of John the Baptist and himself, and he shows the fickleness of people in his day, indeed the fickleness of humanity. And this proverb is about children who won't, you know, dance or cry at the beck and call of others. We want you to do something. You're not doing it for us. You're supposed to do things the way we want it, who failed to respond. And so what Jesus is saying about his hearers is they refuse to heed God's word. They complained equally about John the Baptist's ministry as they now did about his. John the Baptist was too serious. He only did funerals, as it were, and Jesus was too you know, happy and meeting with sinners, and it was like he only did parties and weddings. When the people piped up and asked for a cheerful message from John, well, they got demands of fasting and talking about sin and coming to the Jordan River to repent. And when they expected, or at least the religious leaders expected Jesus to be all solemn and do all the do's and don'ts that they wanted, there he was hanging out with sinners, with prostitutes and tax collectors and offering the way of salvation and forgiveness through him. You see, the message of God's kingdom is often unexpected. It upsets the status quo so often of man-made religion. God will not be fitted into humanity's preconceived ideas of him. He won't pander to our prejudices. Now, where to come to him on his terms? Look, as we apply this to our generation, we have to realise that we can fall into this trap of putting Jesus into our preconceived boxes as well. For example... Uh, We can want Jesus to fit our religious norms too, just like the Jewish leaders wanted. You know, maybe we want him to be middle class, uh, to value what we value, to condemn what we condemn. We imagine that he'll be okay with our culture and say that it's biblical and Christian like we so often want to do when often it's worldly. 
We imagine him rubber stamping all that we do rather than coming and calling us to repent from our comfortable self-absorption. Or we might want Jesus to be our life coach. In our society today, it's all about how we feel, isn't it? It's our experience that we get the most out of life. I want to suck the marrow out of life. I want everything to be just as I want it. And so I want Jesus, you know, to be the one who gives me health and wealth and wisdom right now. Certainly not someone who calls me to take up my cross and to follow him, whatever the cost. Oh, don't give me that, Jesus. Or we want Jesus to be fully domesticated, Someone that we pull out of the cupboard when we need him. You know, someone who's just a source of good morals. He's just a, a teacher that um, has some good things for our kids to learn, who helps us maybe rise above the standards of our neighbours so that we look impressive. Someone who, when his teaching aligns with us, well, then we like him. But when he has things that are a bit harder, well, we want to feel free to ignore him. Rather than have him lord of our life, we want him just to be the teacher and the guide. I think that last one's perhaps the favourite in our society today. Average Australian is happy for Jesus to be on those terms. Well, where do you stand? You know, there's no other question that will ever be asked of you in your whole life that's as important as this. Who is Jesus and how are you responding and in his book, Mere Christianity, the famous uh, British writer C.S. Lewis said this, A man who was merely a man and said and did the sort of things that Jesus said and did wouldn't be some great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the same level with a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You've got to take your choice. Either this is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon or you can fall down at his feet as Lord and God. But don't come up with any patronising nonsense about him just being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that alternative open to us. He did not intend to. See, I think this is where Jesus leads us at the end of this passage. Because in verse 35, he finishes with a little proverb again. And he says that wisdom will be proved right by her children. Maybe you think today in this world, look, there's so many people ignoring Jesus that aren't interested. You know, maybe they're right. Um, you know, maybe I'm wasting my time. Will I be vindicated if I'm following Jesus? Well, this proverb is saying just that. It means that God's purposes in Jesus will be vindicated by the results. That is, by the many who put aside their preconceived ideas of Christ and who come to him empty-handed in wholehearted repentance and faith. Those who have joined the people of God through a certain trust in Jesus as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture, not in the imagination of their mind. You see, if you are a believer today, you know how the story finishes. When you get to the end of the Bible, you know the promises that relate, the inheritance that awaits those who do stand firm and follow Christ as Lord. In Revelation 7 verse 9 we read, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne. 
Look, the way is narrow, and few find it, as Jesus says. But those few are countless in Revelation 7. And so often we overlook the wonderful inheritance, the promise that we have that is right before us. And we go off distracted in the things of this world. You know, in West Texas, uh, there's a famous oil field called Yates Pool. And in the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, this land owned by Mr. Yates uh, was just a sheep farm. In fact, he was so desperate, like so many in the area, that he was almost forced to sell it. They were going to foreclose on him at the bank. He didn't have money to feed his family, let alone pay the mortgage on his farm. And he was receiving government subsidies like so many in that period. And then one day an oil drilling crew came and knocked on his door. They said, Mr. Yates, we think you might have oil on your property. And at 370 metres down, they hit a massive reserve. 80,000 barrels of oil per day. And it stayed at that rate for the next 30 years. The man became a mega multimillionaire. And yet he was almost dying living in poverty on this very land. See, under American uh, land ownership rules, you own all the mineral rights if you own the land. The day he purchased it, he had everything. But it seemed he had nothing. He owned it, but he didn't possess it. Now, our world is so often like this. The riches of God's salvation right under our nose and we're ignoring it or we're ignorant of it. Look, if you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you not to be distracted by the things of this world. Don't fall away into doubts. Don't create some self-serving Jesus in your imagination He's just there to stamp whatever you're doing. Come back to God's word. Come back to the living Christ and see how he is revealed in the pages of scripture as the Lord over your life. And bow down before him each and every day. Realign your expectations. Follow what is important to him. Not what's important to you or your neighbor. And if you're not a believer here today, I want to urge you to receive the wonderful offer that Jesus makes. He truly is the Christ, the promised Messiah that was to come, the one who would lay down his life so that we might have acceptance with God through that sin of ours, that barrier between us and God being dealt with, being forgiven. The right response throughout this passage is, is to come to Jesus in trust. It's the only thing that makes sense of the authority and power he demonstrates. And that call upon your life is something I want to ask you to consider this morning, that you might respond to God's love shown to you in the sending of his son. Let me pray for us. Now, Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that as so often we do wander off in different directions. We can feel uh, that sense of waywardness, pulled away by the things of this world, by our own designs that we would have for Jesus. Lord, help us to see that we don't 
come to him on our terms, but rather on his. Help us to submit to him, the Christ, the King, and to appreciate the wonderful, wonderful promises that come, the salvation that is in him and the inheritance that is to follow. Lord, help us to see how wonderful your plan for our lives is, this unfolding plan of salvation that you began even before the creation of this world. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.